the top diplomat visiting uh, Putin, to be followed by, I believe it's Xi Jinping yes. himself, also traveling to Moscow. A very worrisome of, you know, development mm -hmm. from the perspective of the United States. This is the Daily Signal podcast for Friday, February 24th. I'm Samantha Sherris, and that was Dakota Wood, a senior research fellow in defense programs here at the Heritage Foundation. Today marks one year since Russia invaded Ukraine, and this week China's top diplomat met with Russian President Vladimir Putin. The top diplomat reportedly said that China is willing to work with Russia to deepen mutual political trust, strengthen strategic coordination, expand cooperation, and safeguard each other's interests. So was this visit out of the ordinary? Is China planning to send Russia weaponry as the war in Ukraine continues on? Dakota and I discuss these questions and much more on today's episode. We'll get to my conversation with Dakota right after this. Hi, I'm Giancarlo Conaparo. And I'm Zach Smith. And we host SCOTUS 101. It's a podcast where you'll get a breakdown of top cases in the highest court in the land. Hear from some of the greatest legal minds. And of course, get a healthy dose of Supreme Court trivia. Want to listen? Find us wherever you get your podcasts or just head to heritage.org slash podcasts. Dakota Wood is joining today's podcast. Dakota is a senior research fellow in defense programs here at the Heritage Foundation's Center for National Defense. Dakota, thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, what a hoot. This is going to be great. Thanks for having me on. <laughs> of course. Now, there has been a lot of news this week relating to China. And to kick us off, I want to discuss some reporting that the U.S. is increasing its troop presence in Taiwan. The Wall Street Journal reports that between 100 and 200 troops will deploy to Taiwan over the next few months. And for more context, uh, about 30 troops were there a year ago. Dakota, first and foremost, what is your reaction to this news? Uh, not surprising. Uh, you know, these are not combat troops. It's mm -hmm. not like we're beefing up our presence on Taiwan like we had in Germany, for example, during the Cold War. I mean, these truly are trainers and liaison types. So if you sell another country a new weapon system, you know, Taiwan's buying aircraft or a anti-ship cruise missile. Well, you could send it to them in a package, but how do they figure out how to use it, right? So we usually send personnel that can help train them up, not only on operating the system itself, but what's the care and feeding, you know, the maintenance that goes along with that, uh, contacts with the contractor who probably have technical representatives on the ground. You know, you get a bad error code or you don't quite know how to tighten the screw on the fitting or something like that, right? So this increase in personnel would be associated with the increases we're seeing in the discussion between the United States and Taiwan with the provision of more and more modern military equipment, right? Uh, there's been that relationship of military support from the U.S. to Taiwan for a very long time. Uh, and, you know, it's against the background of China's uh, reaching out to Russia, a growing uh, China-Russia alliance uh, by, by default or de facto uh, as opposed to a formal agreement. But, you know, Russia's ongoing war against Ukraine has had it looking for additional sources of supply. So China has made some noise about 
by providing what they term, everybody calls lethal aid as opposed to humanitarian aid. So munitions, ammo of various types, uh, missile systems, that sort of thing. So if you're in Taiwan and you're looking at that, this mm-hmm. very muscular, aggressive China, the the statements that uh, Xi Jinping has been you know, making about um, China's ambitions and look at all those sayings, and you look, you're Taiwan, you look to your friends, mm-hmm. uh, very few in number, the United States being the primary friend, they would like more military support, and we're going to then provide the personnel mm-hmm. that would be associated with those packages of support to help train and educate and act as a liaison. Well, someone who recently brought up the idea of arming Taiwan and, and really spoke to the threat that China poses to Taiwan was Senator Josh Hawley. He was just here last week at Heritage, um, and he and he spoke about this pressing threat uh, from China. Specifically, he said. If China invades Taiwan, they would prevail. Let me say that again. If China were to invade Taiwan today, they would prevail, which is why we are at an inflection point, a moment when we have to make some tough decisions. And I would just submit to you a moment for real change. What do you think of Senator Hawley's assessment? I I think it's accurate. The U.S. military today is roughly half the size it was during the Cold War. You know, some variations on that, but roughly half. So if we look at the Navy alone, we, we've shrunk from uh, in the 1980s, uh, 580 ships thereabouts, to today 295, 294, somewhere there. And it's going to drop to 280. In the Cold War, we kept about 100 ships deployed on a daily basis. Today, we still keep 100 ships. So how can you keep the same number of ships deployed with half the force? Well, it's because you're working the ships twice as much and the crews twice as much. Of those 100, maybe 60 are in the Indo-Pacific. So we would have 60 ships. Um, How many are actually available in other places of the world to surge in that direction, that it would take weeks to get there? Not that many, you know, 40, 50, 60, something like that. The Chinese Navy today has 360. Mm -hmm. So a six-to-one advantage just in naval ships. And then you have China's uh, shore-based anti-ship missiles, uh, shore-based uh, what we call maritime patrol aircraft, you know, an airplane that can carry an anti-ship missile. And all that's right there on China. So our forces would be operating six or 7,000 miles from home. Uh, all of China's stuff is right there, 100 miles away from Taiwan. Mm-hmm. Okay, So their ability to generate military power and have it immediately useful in huge numbers uh, in any kind of fight over Taiwan, that's China's advantage. The United States' advantage is the closest bases we have are in Japan. Uh, still kind of close, but the force sizes aren't significant. And then there's Guam, uh, yeah, Hawaii, uh, ports in California, airfields in the western part of the United States, you know, some stuff up in Alaska. See, if you just think about the geography involved, very hard for the United States to quickly flow substantial military power and then to be able to sustain that mm-hmm. you know, with ammunition and fuel and repair parts and replacing combat losses. So the numbers are heavily in favor of China. And so Senator Hawley saying these things that if China decided to move today or tomorrow or whatever, just by numbers alone Mm -hmm. in geographic proximity, they would probably carry the day. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of being more forward-leaning in our support to Taiwan, making it very clear that we've got a 
uh, a commitment, if not a legal commitment. You know, there's no treaty alliance, but we've certainly said things over the years mm -hmm. to assure Taiwan that we would help to prevent a takeover by force from China. So I think he is raising a very clear, uh, compelling and understandable argument mm -hmm. uh, for the dangers that loom. And it all goes back to how much are we doing in Ukraine, but you can't walk away because of the potential for a Russian win in Europe and the implications for larger geostrategic interests in the United States. And so the big takeaway here is how much have we allowed our, our own military to atrophy and to shrink, and what are the implications for the United States being able to secure its interests in many different parts of the world at the same time? Mm -hmm. Well, you just brought up uh – the war, the ongoing war in Ukraine. And today is the one year anniversary of that invasion uh, by Russia into Ukraine. And earlier this week, um, as uh, you know, as we, we saw the news that President Biden was meeting with Zelensky, uh, we saw that President Vladimir Putin was meeting with China's top diplomat. And uh, that diplomat, Wang Yi, said, as uh, NPR is reporting, that China is willing to work with Russia to deepen mutual political trust, strengthen strategic coordination, expand cooperation, and safeguard each other's interests. Was this visit out of the ordinary, and, and should the U.S. be concerned? I don't know that it's out of the ordinary in terms of the relations that exist between various powers. You know, they're always looking over their shoulder and kind of outside to say who might be able to challenging my interests mm -hmm. or frustrating my attempts to grow those interests and to secure them. Right. So the unusual part would be this very overt effort between China, Chinese Communist Party, Xi Jinping. Uh, to work more closely and overtly, very explicitly, with Vladimir Putin, you know, Moscow, you know, Russia as a whole. So, is it an alliance? I I don't know that that it, it's an alliance in practice, mm -hmm. right? As opposed to some kind of a formal alliance uh, that we saw in World War One, World War Two, amongst you know Axis powers. But you know, if we took the United States in its totality easily overwhelms either a China or a Russia if you could get all your stuff where you wanted it to be at one time and be able to use it effectively. But if now you have two major competitors, mm -hmm. Russia and China, and you throw in uh, you know, a, a problematic country like Iran or North Korea with its nuclear inventory or just other issues in the world, uh, you can't handle all of those at the same time. And so from the perspective of Moscow and Beijing, isn't it better to kind of join forces in a sense, you know, such that together operating in our own spheres, mm -hmm. it causes more problems for the United States, who is increasingly unable to address two major competitors, you know, at the same time, keeping us off balance, dividing attention, and really putting a stressor on the resources we have available. Mm -hmm. So these these discussions back and forth, you know, China offering potential lethal aid, you know, weapons, ammunition, et cetera, to Russia for its war in Ukraine, uh, the top diplomat visiting uh, Putin, to be followed by, I believe it's Xi Jinping yes. himself, also traveling to Moscow. Uh, a very worrisome of, you know, development mm -hmm. from the perspective of the United States and, and our friends and allies around the world. Yes, I'm so glad you brought that up because I had been reading some reports that Xi Jinping was, uh, you know, potentially visiting uh, Russia over the next couple of months. Obviously, 
from the U.S. perspective, not uh, not a very uh, positive move, not a very uh, reassuring move. Especially, he, he doesn't travel much. I mean, he yes, doesn't make many yes. trips out of the country. So for one of these few to be to Moscow says a lot. Yes, it definitely does. And you've been talking about, uh, you know, China's potential arms transfer to Russia. And uh, I just want to get your thoughts and pick your brain on this. Obviously, we've been talking about how, you know, today is the one year anniversary of of Russia's invasion. And if China were to supply Russia with weaponry, uh, what would that mean for this this war that unfortunately doesn't seem to be ending anytime soon and also for the world? Yeah. Uh, so at the beginning, a year ago, right? Yes. Uh, if you looked at the inventories on both sides of the battle, Russia and Ukraine, Russia had four to five times as much equipment and you know, it's old Cold War stocks of munitions. I mean, it just dramatically outnumbered uh, Ukraine. Uh, in the initial weeks and few months, uh, badly handled its offensive operation, just a lot of very stupid things tactically, wasted a lot of ammo. And the Ukrainians, you talk about a heroic defense, uh, really outshone uh, any expectations that they would be able to put up a fight, right? So they did what they did with their own uh, material equipment, uh, willingness uh, to fight, all those sorts of things, right? Their ability to sustain that fight was only made possible because of the sustained support from the West. Mm -hmm. So once they used up all of their own organic ammunition and their initial set of tanks and those sorts of things was blown up to be able to replace that stuff, you know, in quantity and improved quality has made it possible for Ukraine to do what it has done up to this point in time. So Russia has also been consuming Cold War supplies, and it has been also reaching out to other sources. So it's you know, it's gone to North Korea. There's been conversations with Iran. Iran is widely known to have been providing Russia with the unmanned aerial vehicles, you know, the UAVs or drones uh, that have been used against uh, Ukraine. So now if China decides to open up its inventory of artillery and short and long-range rockets and all the other things that it could provide, like we have been supporting Ukraine with, right, it just enhances Russia's ability to continue this assault on Ukraine. And uh, nobody is providing Ukraine bodies, you know, in terms of NATO forces, and nobody's even proposing to do that. But what that means is Russia's limited population. You know, how long can they tolerate continued battlefield losses? Mm-hmm. If support from the West in terms of ammunition and sorts, you know, equipment, that kind of stuff, if that starts to dry up because of the reduction to worrisome levels in Western inventories, you know, for ourselves. Mm-hmm. What does that mean for their ability to sustain the fight, right? So this this promise or the potential for Chinese support to Russia gives Russia a huge lifeline mm-hmm. to continue a level of fighting that just cannot be matched by Ukraine uh, unless it continues to receive similar types of support from the West. Oh, gosh. What a mess. This it's is a mess. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I mean, we now have I mean, we've we've you know, a year with this war in Ukraine, this pressing threat from China, potential invasion into Taiwan. Um, and, you know, if Josh, if Senator Hawley is correct, they would prevail in, in taking Taiwan. Uh, are there any lessons that we could learn from the last year and the fighting that's been going on in Ukraine that could translate to 
a potential invasion of Taiwan? Yeah, so I think in, in, in two ways. There are positive lessons at the cost of Ukrainian blood. The West should mm-hmm. be taken from this. But there are also insights, lessons, what mm-hmm. have you, that China can be taking, that if Russia wins in Ukraine, then it's a validation of the idea that you can use military force to take what you want, mm-hmm. right, in spite of the threat of sanctions or becoming diplomatically a pariah state or what have you, right? All that stuff has been levied on Russia. Putin doesn't care. He's in a land grab. He views this Ukrainian territory as rightfully Russian, mm-hmm. part of Russia. And so he's expanding these frontiers for, for that primary objective. Similarly, in China, China views Taiwan as rightfully Chinese, and it wants to bring this renegade province you know, back under Beijing's control. So if it works for Russia and Europe, uh, you know, right there up against NATO uh, allies of the United States, right? Why couldn't it work for China mm-hmm. against Taiwan when all of Taiwan's supporters, very few in number, are so far away, mm-hmm. right? You would think that the problem set for China is that much easier. So much of the world is economically dependent on trade with China. Mm-hmm. Who in the world did any trade at all with Russia, mm-hmm. right? So China, could their takeaway could be this is very doable. Mm-hmm. We probably want to do it sooner than later because as everybody wakes up to the reality of war and they start to rearm like Japan is just beginning to do, that will take years mm-hmm. to make material changes in the Japanese self-defense force and in other countries in that region. So instead of waiting until their potential opponents are ready for it, it, this incentivizes China to move more quickly. The the positive lessons for the United States is, in spite of all the rhetoric before the invasion in Mm -hmm. Ukraine, uh, you know, modern countries would never go to war with each other. There's too much to be lost economically. Uh, You you, you remember those arguments, right? And yet war occurred. So it seems that large-scale conventional war Mm -hmm. that kills thousands of people and destroys countries is still a feature Mm -hmm. of 21st century geopolitics. And I think we have largely forgotten that in the West. Mm -hmm. This is a brutal reminder that it still is the case, and it could also be a case in the Indo-Pacific with China's move against Taiwan. So we just can't dismiss that as some artifact Mm -hmm. of a bygone era. Yeah, that is such a – that's such a – great point and and really um you know just a reminder like that what we've been talking about is it's not out of the purview it's right. completely possible and uh, just before we go Dakota I wanted to ask about what we're hearing from the White House and and if there's been any response uh from them ahead of you know leading up this week to the one year anniversary of of Russia's invasion and this pressing threat from China well, the rhetoric is always pretty good uh, because mm-hmm. it's easy to craft a speech that says all the right things, right? Where the breakdown occurs is do you see actions that correspond to the words that follow up fairly quickly? Mm-hmm. So President Biden in his speech in Kiev and then his speech in Warsaw uh, and even statements coming to the White House would talk about our ironclad guarantee that we would defend every square inch of you know NATO. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I mean, who hasn't said that in the past? Uh, NATO country hasn't been attacked yet. So it's easy to make that promise. Um, If Article 5 of the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, you know, um, uh, uh, paper, you know, that treaty document was invoked uh, so that if one NATO member is attacked, all NATO members are attacked. But Article 5, if you actually get into it, it doesn't dictate 
how other member states would respond to that, mm. right? It doesn't guarantee or obligate a military response. You could just say, well, we're going to cut off diplomatic relations or impose tariffs or sanctions or something like that. So the words sound good. Mm -hmm. It's like the words of assurance to Taiwan and finger-wagging at China you know, to say, you better not move against Taiwan because the United States will stand fast with its friends, mm -hmm. right? Uh, okay. I mean, I buy that rhetoric. I want to hear those sorts of things. But what is the material action behind the scenes. Have we seen a dramatic shift in forces to the Indo-Pacific? Have we seen a dramatic expansion in the defense budget to get more ships and aircraft, which should be needed? Are there large investments in uh, munitions manufacturing you know, to replace what we've given to Taiwan and build the inventory that you would probably need in a war with China, right? So until we see actions that follow the rhetoric, uh, I, I think we still have to question the sincerity of the White House. Well, Dakota, thank you so much for joining us today. <laughs> I, I wish we had happier, happier <laughs> topics to discuss. Well, I appreciate your insight and uh, your willingness to come on and talk about this. Uh, definitely scary times that we're living in, terrifying, yeah. I'd say. Uh, I appreciate it. And hopefully next time you join, we'll have some better news to talk about. I hope about. so. Thank uh, you so thanks much. Thanks for having me on. God bless. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thank you for listening to my interview with Dakota Wood. If you haven't gotten a chance, make sure you subscribe to The Daily Signal wherever you get your podcasts and help us reach even more listeners by leaving a five-star rating and review. We read and appreciate all of your feedback. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day, and we'll be back with you all this afternoon for top news. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive producers are Rob Bluey and Kate Trinko. Producers are Virginia Allen and Samantha Asheris. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. To learn more, please visit DailySignal.com.